Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am a man of constant sorrow. I am not a fish called Wanda. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good as well. Thank you very much. Looking forward to going through another great soundtrack album today. Indeed, yeah. It's a, it's a belter, this one. Mm, it is. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. Kev, tell the people which soundtrack album we are going through today, as if they didn't know, having looked at the title of this week's episode. But you know, well, yeah, we've got to we've got to keep with our tradition of how we introduce exactly. it. Exactly. So it's uh, we will be going through the first album of music from the motion picture, Train Spotting. Indeed, because there are two, but uh, the original, and in my opinion, best of the two is the one we're going through today. Indeed. Beforehand, however, it is your pick for Video Killed the Radio Star. So, what do you want to talk about? So, I went right back to the early 2000s. Yeah, you did. Yeah, because it's a belted video. So, it is the video for uh, Feeder's song, Just a Day. Now, if you ever watched MTV2 in the early 2000s, you will have seen this a lot. Yes. So, basically, the video shows various fans of the band miming to the song in their bedroom and it's the first real example of crowdsourcing that i can remember mm-hmm. yeah so apparently it started off as a competition on the band's website in which fans had to send an unedited video of themselves and the director chose the best ones and after being notified they were asked to not put anything on any internet forums until the video was released yeah and it's such an iconic video. It's great. I don't remember anyone doing anything like this beforehand. No. Nope. And it was brilliant. It was like whenever when you first saw it, you were like, fucking hell, that's really good. Absolutely. So, as ever, I come armed with quotes. There is a really, really good article on CNET.com, which explains the story of the video and has got has got quotes from various people involved in it, including some of the contributors actually. We'll, we'll tweet out the link to the article when we post the video out. So, I've cribbed a load of quotes from it. Firstly, Grant Nichols, the lead singer of Feeder, he said, We were on tour, so it was a bit difficult finding time to shoot a video. The director said, I've got this idea. We thought it was absolutely bonkers. We were a little cunning because we didn't want it to be too staged. We wanted people to think, if I do some crazy thing, I might be in the next Feeder video. They didn't realise this song actually was going to be the video. It's very much a youthful song, so it's nice to see all those young people with their interpretation of it. You had the girl who saw it as quite a dark, serious thing. We'll come back to her in a minute. (laughs) And you had kids goofing around and jumping on the bed. It was interesting for me as a writer to see how people interpret songs and what it meant to them. Uh, the director, David Mould, he said the budget was sufficiently low for me to feel free to offer up a risky but fun idea to the band. Years before, I'd made a tragic but entertaining video of myself, kind of dancing and moshing alone in my room to Jane's Addiction's song, Being Caught Stealing. 
tune. I need to belter that. It was hugely embarrassing, but despite my own horror show, I hoped the result would be a little cooler. We soon found out that the tapes that were sent in were not only free of the constraints of trying to be cool, but they had a lovely pathos, energy, naivety, and no little invention. It was a success in a way I couldn't have predicted. Still probably my most recognised and unique work, and what I'd like to call the best video I never directed, although I still get asked if it was all a setup. And then, very quickly, contributor to the video, Ben Baker. He holds up the sign with the words blurred out, which apparently just said, hello, mum. He said the popularity could be down to the very human face of the clip, with real fans titting around, dancing and seriously overacting in a way that is ten a penny on YouTube now. But in all honesty, it's just an uplifting, bouncy pop stonker that people never get sick of. Fair play to you, Ben Baker, because yeah. I think you've pretty much nailed that there. Yeah, the joy of of the video is mostly the people just having a buzz. So the yeah the the two uh, Asian fans, the two Japanese fellows, Defo want to go for the point with them. They are, they look great. Yeah, they look so <laughs> much fun. Like the the kids in like there's loads of them in the room who were just having having a whale of a time. That looks dead fun. The lads that stop the tape and have a drink of the cup of t- the brew before they go back on. Yeah. <laughs> so something else I learned from that article: the kid with the toy drums, who's the best thing in it, by the way, and the blonde girl in the white shirt with the guitar. They're brother and sister. Is that right? Louis and Georgia Masquerade. They are brother and sister. Their dad basically liked Feeder and, and, and filmed them. <laughs> so a couple other things. That girl in the blue top, she is taking herself far too seriously. Oh, yeah. Well, she does like a whole sort of, oh, I've just woken up. and <laughs> Yeah, interpretive dance. Yeah. She defo studied performing arts. Oh, yeah, she was a drama student. Do you think she looks back on that now and regrets her choice? <laughs> no, because she got on the video. that's very fair actually there's a lad playing electric guitar and like actually playing electric guitar along with the song which whilst I want to laugh at him is 100% what I'd have done if I could have been asked doing this (laughs) there's so there's so many lads on it who are playing along and it's like yeah and feed like I can understand why feeder and the director stuck them in because that's going to be a good chunk of your audience oh god definitely and there's like some of the fashion really dates the video. Yeah, it does. Like, there's a there's a lad in that extremely tight fitting blue paisley shirt. Girls wearing absolutely massive belts, but not as belts. <laughs> that used to really fucking wind me up back in the day. That did. Yeah, there's the there's the girl in like sort of the black sort of sheer top as well. Yes, and, which yes. is again very reminiscent of the era. It is indeed. But yeah, I, I think it's a really fun song and a really fun video. So there is there was an updated version. Huh? Yeah, so a 2020 version. So uh, the band posted a 15-second video on YouTube inviting fans to submit their own video in the same way almost 19 years prior. Oh, was this a lockdown thing, was yeah, it? Yeah, so, it so it's okay. called the lockdown version. And it does feature updated appearances of two of the participants from the 2001 oh, cool. video. So I think it might be the, the the little girl that you mentioned playing the guitar mm-hmm. and one of the Japanese fellas with his young child is, is in it. Fair play. No, I, I haven't seen this. Yeah, I saw this video a lot 
well, as did you, we fucking lived together. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I haven't seen it for a long time. And it was a nice trip down memory lane, watching it again, listening to the tune again. It did make me feel fucking old, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it brought it brought a smile to my face, though, um, yes. watching it again. Indeed. And that's what we aim to do here on Arm Clutch. So uh, we'll post the link to the video and hope that you similarly are cheered by watching it. Yeah. So enjoy. Uh, okay. With that, Kev, please could you start taking us through the first and original soundtrack album to the film Train Spotting? So, the album itself was uh, released on the 9th of July 1996 on EMI in the UK and Capital in the US. As Tim says, it was the first version, and um, there was a subsequent second one due to the success of this. And this album is very much the proper soundtrack album. Unlike the second one, which had songs that were influenced by um, and it had very little sort of relevance to the film. It was it was very much a cashing in. This, So yeah, all the songs within this uh, soundtrack are included in the film. And I, I suppose that the, the album itself reflects very much the era that it came out in. So Danny Boyle, the director, had had success with Shallow Grave, which also had a a pop-inflected soundtrack. But this, this more so than anything else, reflected the zeitgeist of the time, musically, visually. Um, there's so much, so much going on here that spoke to spoke to that time and the confidence of the film and the vision that, that Danny Boyle creates in it is reflected in the in the soundtrack and how it's put together. And it also, you know, it reflects his his taste as well. And it's also reflective of the actual story, the book from um, Irvin Welsh and the mm-hmm. the interests of those characters, which is obviously why Iggy Pop is such a, a big part of, of the soundtrack. Uh, it is, uh, but I'll come back to that in a bit because there's another reason why Iggy Pop is such a big part of the soundtrack as well. But we'll come on to that in, in a minute. I do, if I may, I do apologise, have a couple of things from Danny Boyle again on his approach to yeah, sure. selecting music for a soundtrack. So, firstly, an interview with Soundcheck just in general, he said that selecting music for soundtracks is one of the deepest pleasures for me. It helps me shape a film in so many ways beyond just the music. It informs the film completely for me. I'm very proud to be able to associate myself with these artists via film. In Sidebar, he's quoted as saying that film music is not just a sidebar that entertains us on our journey. It's also our journey in so many ways. And I think that is very similar to what we talked about last week with Quentin Tarantino. It's interesting to see there's some very similar thought processes going on there that to both of these directors, and this is back to one of the reasons I chose these two to clash against each other. Yeah, the soundtrack is integral to the story. It's part Mm -hmm. of the story itself. Specifically on train spotting and the soundtrack to the film, he said this in an article uh, in GQ magazine. We decided early on we weren't going to score the film in a traditional way. So you look at the masters. You look at the way that Scorsese, particularly in Mean Streets, uses his music. One of the ways we can actually identify the period is to move from Iggy Pop through to dance music. When Renton moves to London and goes to a rave, right up to Pulp, Blur, Sleeper and Elastica. The film's time span is impossible because Renton 
person doesn't age and they don't cut their hair. But you feel you've moved through a period of time on a sensual rather than a documentary level. Now, I've got to say, until I read that quote, I'd never thought of it like that as, as a story that was occurring over a period of years rather than of weeks or months. But that makes sense, actually. Mm-hmm, it does. And it's, as, as as you said, and as both Danny Boyle and Quentin Tarantino have said, is that the use of music in their films isn't mere window dressing. It's not merely a soundscape just to stick in the background. It's thought out. It's And, you know, as, as we go through uh, this, as we did last week, there are massively iconic scenes created by the use of use of music throughout throughout this. Absolutely. And it's really interesting that Danny Boyle mentioned Scorsese there because obviously he is someone else who places a lot of truck in music. And back to our very first episode, we mentioned the use of Layla in Mm -hmm. Goodfellas, so you know. One more thing on background, if I may, before handing. So there is one act who declined to contribute to the soundtrack of the album. A quite well-known act by the name of Oasis. Do you know why? I'll have a guess at it, but yes, the particularly as you know, we're saying how zeitgeisty and everything it is, and redolent of the time that their name is quite clearly missing from it. Is it basically because Blur were on it? No, no, nothing so petty. It's because Noel Gallagher's an idiot and didn't understand what the film was about. So these are Noel Gallagher's own words. In an article in Far Out magazine, he is quoted as saying, Nobody told me. Why did it not say heroin addicts in the title? I'd never heard of Irving Welsh, and I'm not very intellectual, so I don't read books. Train spotting. I feel about trains. I was like, nah, you're right, mate. Little did I know it would go on to be one of the great British films of all time. Well, there you go, Noel. That's your fault, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Serves you right. Exactly, it does. Yeah, quite. (laughs) To be fair, this was peak Noel Gallagher fucking coke time. So, uh, anyway. Yeah, before we get into the other reasons. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing more on background. No, I have nothing more either. It's, It's rather thin in terms of additional information in terms of this film, so... Which would be a blessed relief to not only the listeners of this podcast, but also its editor. (laughs) (laughs) So, how did you first come across the album? I bought it on CD and listened to it in 1996. (laughs) How about you? So I didn't buy it on CD. I copied it off a lad at school and had it on a tape. Well, we said it last week, didn't we? This this was must-have... So yeah, if you if you were as we were fifteen in nineteen ninety six, you had the train spotting soundtrack. Yeah, because exactly that it was billed as a as a compilation album. All your favourite bands are on here. Go and buy it. So I did. Yeah, I think the the beauty of this soundtrack, and again, what Danny Boyle does is that the it hooks particularly teenagers of that era in with. These are the contemporary bands. These these are the people that you're listening to. Oh wait, there. Here's Iggy Pop. Here's Lou Reed. You know. So there's there's these other bits that give you an introduction if you hadn't heard that stuff into into that. And yes, yeah, the, that, I was that. I'm very grateful to this soundtrack that it, it did lead me to listen to other things. Well, ditto. And and to me, it's not just the 
the older artists, you know, there is one act in particular whose track is quite famously used on this soundtrack who did very well out of the fact that a load of indie boys went out and bought this soundtrack album. We'll come on to it later, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Okay, so let's do the cover. Mm. Well, once again, like we said last week, it's it's an iconic image. It's the it's the iconic poster from the movie, isn't it? Yeah. It is it is the poster that, as we said, if there wasn't a pulpit fiction one up, there was probably this one up. I, I had both. <laughs> <laughs> It's designed by Styler Rouge, who'd done a lot of album covers and stuff for Blur, apparently. In an interview with Vice magazine, the owner of Styler Rouge said, the film distributors were looking for something that kind of set it within a similar market to the music industry. We didn't really want it to look like any other film poster. These guys just walked in very intense. They'd been living this life for a few weeks, and it was a reasonably low-budget movie. They weren't being mollycoddled as actors. They looked pretty grim. And that comes across, certainly of the image of Ewan McGregor, where he's soaking wet, obviously. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it looks intense. Yeah, and the images that they used for it became so iconic. And, yes, you know, the, the picture of Robert Carlyle as Begbie, yeah. Johnny Lee Miller as uh, Sick Boy, you yes. know, yeah, all, all of them. Lovely font. It's a great font. And lovely use of the or- orange British rail colour. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So apparently the colour scheme and the font was chosen to replicate the sort of warning labels you get on medicine bottles and, you know, and hazardous materials. So yeah, very effective. There you go. I've got nothing more. Nope, nor have I. Okay, let's get into it then. So we open with Lustful Life by Iggy Pop. We do indeed. And well, what a way to open a film. Well, just like we said last week with Misery Lou, it's, it is absolutely synonymous with the opening of this film. It was just as you'd said the first time I'd been exposed to Iggy Pop's music. And you can't hear that rolling, pounding drum rhythm without thinking of Ewan McGregor and his sambas legging it down the high street after after going on a... On a... Yeah, after robbing something from John Menzies. <laughs> Wait, is that John Mings? No, it's John Menzies. It probably is John Mings, but it's also, it's John Menzies. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Whatever happened to John Menzies? Went the same way as McCall's. McCall's still exists. There's one about 500 yards away from where I'm sat right now. I've not seen a McCall's for ages. I'm telling you, there's one down the oh, way. Okay. There's one in the fucking village you used to live in, which is the village I used to live in too, anyway. <laughs> this is great content. <laughs> Do you want me to uh, throw in Happy Shopper? Well, Happy Shopper was never a shop, though. It was just a brand of food. No, I've seen Happy Shoppers. No. Yeah. We always got Happy Shopper stuff from the spa, which is weird because, like, they sold spa-branded stuff anyway. <laughs> Absolute gold <Yeah>. bits. <laughs> Low cost. Remember them? No, not at all. Low cost was, like, an, an even lower-budget cost cutter. Should we throw in B-Jam and Gateway? Well, I know what happened to B-Jam. Uh, they became Iceland and Gateway became Asta. the Asta. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure this is definitely making the cut. It's going on Twitter, mate. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he's been Robin and they're playing Lust for Life and it's iconic and that. <laughs> yeah, John Mings. <laughs> yeah, like I said, just like with Muzaloo, it's a statement. Bang. Yeah. Here's a fucking film that's not like anything you've seen before. 
and it's going to hit you right from the off with Hugh McGregor going arse over tit of Vauxhall Cavalier's bonnet. Yeah, and again, because of the way they marketed the film very much in a, an album pop style way, then mm-hmm. there was a, they did a video for Lust for Life, which had... Yep. Um, members of the cast in it, and obviously excerpts from the from the film, and you know brought half naked Iggy Pop into the consciousness for lots of um, lots of people who wouldn't have wouldn't necessarily have come across him before, including car insurance companies. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> could be worse. He could be doing uh, butter adverts. Oh dear me, John Lydon. Well, and yes, quite. <laughs> okay i want to talk a bit about the decision to use this in the film the the influence of bowie is writ large over the this film over the novel and and over so many songs on this soundtrack Mm -hmm. so obviously lust for life is from the album of the same name which was recorded straight as a follow-up to the idiot and again produced by by david bowie so irvin welsh In 2016, he said if you were a young, working-class man in Britain, Bowie basically set you free in terms of his aesthetics and his projected sexuality. I don't think I'd be a writer if it hadn't been for that kind of influence and the people he turned me on to. Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and all that stuff. So, Danny Boyle and Andrew MacDonald, he was the music supervisor, they actually approached Bowie to use some of his songs in the film, and I'll come on to one in particular in a couple of minutes. But we turned them down, as he did often. And so an A&R fella at AMI Records, Tristram Penner, he suggested that they use Lust for Life for this scene. So he said in an interview with The Enemy, I saw a rough cut of the film at a screening room on Darlaby Street in Soho. It was a mess. I don't even know who the music supervisor was, but some of the suggestions were just awful and not at all right. I'd been a huge clubber in London, and Iggy Pop's Lust for Life had always been a huge club hit since the Batcave days, so I knew it would get the adrenaline rushing if I used it in the opening. I remember suggesting that song because Danny and Andrew were continually upset that Bowie had turned them down, so they cut it in with Lust for Life, and it was transformational. Well... As we've just said, it is an inspired choice mm-hmm. for this scene in the film, for your, as we've said so many times with albums and the same is true for films, for your statement opening. Bang. Here you go. Yeah, you've got you've got that drum roll opening and it, it it's a it's a starting pistol. It literally is a starting pistol because you know yeah. you've got Ewan McGregor legging it as fast as he as fast as he can. Yeah, it's 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 a brilliant brilliant music choice and it's um, a great piece of happenstance because you can't imagine the opening to that film with anything else. Nope. And as you said, it definitely reinvigorated Iggy's career, which he himself oh, without has question. acknowledged on numerous occasions. The one thing I, I want to say about the song, I mean, you can't not have heard it. Comparing it to everything on The Idiot, and we touched on this when we went through The Idiot, actually, it's completely different stylistically. Oh, and considering this came out in the same year, stylistically, everything on the Lust for Life album is completely different to what you've heard on The Idiot just a few months before. Well, and as as we talked about when we went through The Idiot, is that essentially, and Bowie admits it, Iggy admits it, that it's essentially a Bowie album. He was working through his ideas for Low 
with Iggy, like Lust for Life is much more of a Iggy Pop album, particularly with that sort of that sort of energy and everything that, that's going on in Lust for Life. So yeah. it, it's not it's not really a surprise, and it's got his his brilliant laconic drawl all throughout it. Oh God, yeah, something that Marky e. Smith certainly owes a debt to, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's um, it's a great tune. Yeah, I've I've got nothing to add because it's a belter. Okay, let's go on then. So yeah, I think it's it's important that you do raise the spectre of Bowie because obviously our next next one we go well it's Brian Eno, um, with Deep Blue Day, utilized in the again iconic underwater scene as Renton Ewan McGregor's character loses his suppository um, mm-hmm. morphine and has to dive into the toilet to retrieve them. Into Scotland's worst toilet, as Indeed. the sign on the door says. I mean, that scene is in equal measure absolutely minging and fucking hilarious, isn't it? It's yeah, that it go like you think, oh god, oh god, and then it goes it just breaks into, this, into these impossible blue waters. Yeah, and then it goes into this mad dream sequence. And it is the perfect soundtrack for it. The, it is. It's got that lovely guitar throughout. <laughs> Although I, I do actually like this piece of music, but I did make a note. It does remind me of the background music a fella doing whistling or playing pan pipes might have in the background in town. So, you know, like a yeah. sort of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the sort of music you hear on a spa day. But again, no, it, it is. But yeah. again, that's because all that music is just, let's do a shit rip-off version of... Of Eno. Of Eno, of ambient music. It's the same as we were talking about when we went through the Orb. They said they were massively inspired by Eno. So, a few things on this. Firstly, on the use of the song, Back to Bowie. This is one where they wanted to use a Bowie song. So again, Tristan Penner. Danny told me of the difficulties they were having in clearing tracks for the film. David Bowie had turned them down, for example. Andrew and Danny were desperate for Bowie. If memory serves, they wanted golden years for the toilet scene. Golden years would not work in this No. At all. But again, he pitched this instead. And it works brilliantly, as you say. It's so... It's from Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois' 1983 album, Apollo, Atmospheres and Soundtracks, which was in itself released for a feature-length documentary about the mm. Apollo missions. And there's a number of tracks from that album that Danny Boyle has used in subsequent films, so most notably on 28 Days Later. And he said about the album, that album is to me one of the greatest atmospheric albums ever. It's just an extraordinary piece of work. I've used it multiple times. I used it in a TV series before I moved into films. And I used it so many times in so many different ways that eventually Brian Eno wrote to me and said, you know I've done other things, don't you? (laughs) It's a beautiful piece of music. I may not be Brian Eno's biggest fan, but I like this album. I mean, it's about space, so, you know. Yeah, it's... It's shooting in the right direction for you. Exactly. It's a luscious, gloriously tranquil soundscape, this, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, the, yeah, the fact that, obviously, it's utilised with that water and everything, like, it does give you that sort of tranquil feeling of being under the sea, in the sea of tranquility. <laughs> well, it, at the risk of opening old wounds, 
this is another one to let wash over you, to let yourself be immersed in and to just <laughs> centre yourself. No, it, it is though. And yes, it is like the sort of music you hear on a spa day. Mm-hmm. Because all those cheap rip-off albums are just trying to copy this sort of thing because it's it's meditative music. So I don't I don't I I, I quite like this, which I'm sure you can accuse me of hypocrisy or no, a lack of consistency. I, but I do like it. I, I don't need to because you're clearly self-aware enough to know that about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I really really like it. And as you just said, its use in the film is so clever. It's the whole scene is, as I said, it's equally repulsive and amusing. And this highlights that absurd juxtaposition in a way that Golden Years could never have done. No, I can't imagine Golden Years with that scene. No, indeed. But well, I'm glad. I'm glad you like this. So yeah, it's it's good. So let's move on to the next song, which is Train Spotting by Primal Scream. Mm. And it's a really moody, atmospheric opening. So it brought to mind that obviously this is this is more from the era that the film is released in. And it brought to mind the sort of the David Arnold, Bjork stuff done done around this time. Maybe a bit of Goldeneye going on as well. Okay, interesting. I I hadn't picked up on that, but I can see where it came from. It is dead moody. The way it starts, great percussion mm-hmm. with some brilliant ethereal electronic noises drifting in and out out of place. Yeah. So it's Primal Scream working with Andrew Weatherall again. It ended up on the brilliant Vanishing Point album, which was released in 97. It's a great album. So uh, here's Bobby Gillespie discussing the song with Spin back in 2016. Basically, what happened was we'd done a track with Andy Weatherall independently of everybody. And then Irving Welsh came and interviewed us for ID magazine for Give Out But Don't Give Up. Not a great album. We obviously really thought he was amazing. We related to him. Working class guy, drug addict, Scottish. He was punk. Lot of similarities. We had a couple of nights out with him and we were like, what a fucking great guy. We'd heard they made a movie of Train Spotting, but they had like Blur, Elastica and Pulp for the soundtrack. And we were like, wait a minute. We're the fucking junkie band, and we're working class. So we managed to get in touch with Irving Welsh, and we said, we should be in that fucking movie. And so we gave them the track. And he managed to get the track in the movie at the last minute. They found the scene, and they added the track in. The song didn't have a title. It was just something we'd done with Andy Weatherall pre-Vanishing Point. So we just said, why don't we call it Train Spotting? Time with the movie. Good idea, right? Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. It's another one we talked about this a couple of times last week. It's quite subtle, mm-hmm. its use in the film. So it's in it's it's in another funny scene. It's where Renton and Sick Boy are in the park and Renton shoots the pit bull in the bollocks yes. with the air rifle. <laughs> and they're talking about what are they talking about? Oh, that's when they're talking about like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and yeah. David Bowie and Sean Connery and all that as well, aren't they? And so this cause it, it it's moody, but it's quite ambient. There's nothing too over the top on the track. I really like it all 10 minutes and 36 seconds of it, Kev. (laughs) But it's also a really good bed because that scene's all about, it's one of the scenes where you see these mates being mates Mm -hmm. with each other and talking shit. 
talking about football, talking about music, you know. It's where one of the areas where you really relate to these guys, even if you're not a smackhead, you know. You've been down the park with your mate talking shite about shite. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, with, without question. Yeah, I, like it's it's great. It's got a, I mean, if you take it just on its own, it has a cinematic sound to it. Yes, it um, does. I, I wouldn't be shocked to see it used in some kind of crime caper film. Oh yeah, uh, I think it actually has been used. Oh right, a, okay. A, or at least in a trailer. So, oh god, what was it called? It's a really good film. I think Steven Soderbergh directed. George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez, Out of Sight. Right, okay. The trailer to that film used this. There you go. And it sounds equally perfect there. So yes, a very very astute observation there. Okay, so. We move on from train spotting to Atomic, a cover version done by Sleeper. Mm. Mm. So what have you said in the past, Kev, about the cardinal sin of cover versions? Don't try and do just a copy of it. Do something original, do something different, because if you try and do just this facsimile version, you are going to fail. And have Sleeper done anything original with this version? No, what they've done is um, a slightly anodyne version of the song where the drumming is nowhere near as good because it's not <laughs> Clem Burke. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, quote, it's so anodyne. It's like a karaoke version. I absolutely love Atomic, but this has absolutely had the balls ripped out of it. Louise Werner was a perfectly good frontwoman, but she was no Debbie Harry. The drums are reasonably played, but nowhere near Clem Burke's level. And they haven't even attempted to include the bass freakout in the breakdown. Oh my god, right, yes. So, absolute hive mind. Right, it does nothing new, misses out Debbie Harry's mesmerising vocals, and also no bass solo in the middle eight. What's that about? Mm-hmm. I can only assume they couldn't get the they couldn't get the rights. Exactly, they couldn't get. The, I was. I only assume Blondie wouldn't let them license the original, so they they got they got a knockoff cover version done because it's it's played in the club it's scene, the club isn't scene, it? Yeah, where Renton meets Diane Kelly McDonald's Diane for the first time, and obviously they then go back and they're at it whilst he's talking about Archie Gemmell in the World Cup. <laughs> and and in that same club scene, they are listening to Heaven 17, Temptation. Yes. So my assumption has always been that it's like, you know, like an 80s disco or whatever, if you, mm-hmm. whatever you like. And therefore, they couldn't, Brondi wouldn't let them license their song, so they got a shit covered to sound exactly the same. Just use a different song from the 80s. Yeah. Atomic is a fucking great, I love Blondie, as I know do you. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love Atomic. This is just how can it be exactly the same and yet vastly inferior? Well, what they've done is they've they've photocopied it, but in black and white. On a really shit resolution. All the colour's been taken from it. Yeah. It's like you've not taped an album from someone's CD. You've taped it from someone else who's taped it and yeah. taped. It's like at least four taped versions, so it's really muffled. And yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it's shite. <laughs> and what surprises me even more is... so. Sleeper, along with several other bands from the Britpop era, reformed and went on tours in the last few years. They were still playing this on those gigs. Fuck are you doing? <sighs> well, clearly, clearly some people liked it. Well, I'm not one of them. I don't know why, though. 
Should we stop talking about yeah, it? Yeah, let's go on to something good. So mm. let's go on to a song we have already discussed before on the pod. Indeed. Temptation by New Order. This is referenced, uh, so Kelly McDonald's uh, character Diane uh, sings the chorus from this at different at least two different points in the in the film. So she sings it when she's in the shower. She then sings it in one of Renton's sort of drug infused sort of hallucinations, hallucinations yeah. when he's going cold turkey. Yeah, and I think it's also is it not playing on the radio when Renton meets Diane's parents and realizes that she's still in school? Yeah, it it might be. So apparently, it's this is actually a re-recorded version of the original, uh, although it was re-recorded in 1987, mm-hmm. so not re-recorded specifically for the film. It was originally released in '82. As you said, we've covered it on Video Killed the Radio Star before, and we said then it's a really, really good song. Yeah, it's always a joy to marvel at Hookie's bass and Stephen Morris's drumming. Brilliant. And some good synth from Julian Gilbert yeah. as well. Simple, but very effective. Yeah, it it we we like we like New Order. We we've do. Talk, we've talked about this song before, and we really like it. It's it's a belter. So I have an interpretation of its use in the film. Why it is that Kelly McDonald's character is singing it? I think there's a sweetness to the melody. It's a song about long lost love, and I think there's a real sweetness to the melody here that I think at least portrays the Diane character's sort of youthful innocence. She hasn't been corrupted by the drugs and the crime that Renton is surrounded by. And to him, she is like an escape from that world. And if my simplistic interpretation is correct, I think it's really effective, again, the way it's used in that way. Yeah, I, I like that interpretation. Okay, very good. Shall we go on to talk about another song we've previously talked about? And another song that we've waxed lyrical or we touch about. Um, so, yes, it's Nightclubbing by Iggy Pop. And I will freely admit my first introduction to this song was through this film. Ditto. Well, we, 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 we discovered when we went through The Idiot that I'd never heard the whole album until we did it for The Clash. So, yes, yeah. very much the same for me, yes. And it's perfect for when it's used in the film because of how sleazy it is and that sort of it characterizes his descent into addiction and crime because there's yeah. various scenes of them of them shoplifting and stuff and he says doesn't he say something like uh when they're talking about all the drugs have taken we would have injected vitamin c if only they'd made it illegal yeah something iggy <laughs> probably would have done as well yeah i mean i'm not gonna talk for ages about it because we've already done it it's still grubby it's still dangerous it's still slutty it's um yeah, and its its use in the film is absolutely perfect in the way it depicts that life of filth and of vice yeah. that we've been pulled into. Very much so. Yeah, it's a great song. So we then move on to uh, Sing by Blur. First song on the soundtrack that has Damon Albarn on it. Yep. And I think it's an absolutely beautiful song. and. Mm-hmm. I think that it, particularly the way it's used in in the film, is it is the kind of tragic grandeur of it with that mournful piano riff and the vocals. It just encapsulates that end of an era, fantasiecle uh, pathos that's going on in, in that part of the film. That is a beautiful way of describing it. The tragic grandeur. I mean, it follows the most brutal scene, mm-hmm. which every time. 
shocks me. So when when sick boy's baby girl Dawn yeah. died, they discovered she died as a result of neglect. It's fuck. I, every time that shocks me and upsets me that scene and then like I said almost straight away you get this yeah it's cinematic in that in that sound with the mournful piano part with the constant drums you know the, uh, from Dave Roundtree so to the song itself it's from Blur's debut album Leisure in 1991 which is a really confused and disjointed album yeah they didn't. They didn't really know what they were at that point. No, absolutely. And as we've mentioned before, along with the Great Escape, Damon Albarn said in, that it's one of two records that he considers to be awful. Sing is by far the standout on that album. Mm-hmm. It hinted at a lot of what was to come down the line for Blur. You've got a great Alex James bassline, but for me, the whole thing, the whole sound of it, is offset brilliantly by the melancholic vocal from Damon Albarn. It's a million miles away from the cheeky chappy of Great Escape. Yeah. It sounds a lot more like the Damon Albarn we'd come to know on Blur and on 13 and on much of what he still does today. I mean, it wasn't like if you put it on to Blur or 13, it sits perfectly with with the tones of those albums. Exactly that. Haunting and vacant uh, two other adjectives mm-hmm. that I would it's really good and I've always liked the song so I was I, I by the time of this soundtrack coming out obviously I was big into Blair so I'd gone back and bought Leisure uh, so I've always liked the song and yeah every time I see the film that scene shocks me mm-hmm. and then you come straight into this and like you said at this point in the film you are really descending into the depths of Renton's despair i guess well the darkness of the group's addiction is is overwhelming at this point that's better yes absolutely because hasn't hasn't tommy started on the smack by this time as well i think he might have yeah yeah a really good song and a really really poignant use yeah definitely so we then move on to Lou Reed's Perfect Day, another song we have covered before. Um, and again, it sh- shows you how influential this um, this album is mm. because how it introduced so many different songs to, to a new audience, as we've said, as I've said loads of times during this. And it's incredibly iconic in its use in this film. Like, as soon as you hear the opening bars of Perfect Day... I can see the carpet sliding. Yes. And that whole scene starting off. So it's the scene where Renton, he's relapsed and he's overdosed on heroin and he wakes up in hospital bed. And for me, that's where the drug connotations with this song come from. Even Lou Reed himself said it was a description of a very straightforward affair. Mm -hmm. And I've always got that from listening to the song. Because I think it's the ju- it's that juxtaposition of the mundanity of what the song is describing with the euphoria of the sound of the song and the dramatic impact of that scene that makes its use, again, so effective and so evocative. And I, I can't hear Perfect Day, really, without thinking of this scene exactly like you've just said. You know, it's... Well, and it's, as, again, credited Danny Boyle, is that he doesn't just use a bit of the song. 
he uses pretty much the whole of it and the use of the you know the the repeated line at the end you're going to reap just what you sow Mm -hmm. it's as though it's you're hearing Renton's inner monologue that he is reaping what he sows he's he's OD'd because Mm -hmm. he's an addict in that and it is absolutely perfectly pitched it's perfectly used and you don't want anything bombastic because he's not been like shot or expl- he's, he's just fallen in into a into an overdose yeah so as you've mentioned yeah it introduced a new audience to Lou Reed it definitely was resulted as with Iggy in an upturn in Lou Reed's fortunes as we've said before at the you know collaboration version that was the BBC's charity song in 97 and subsequently a load of other moribund cover versions of, of this song. So this was another one that was Tristram Penner's pitch, and he's not proud of, of, of what this song became. So he said in an interview with Dazed, I'm really happy about Iggy, but I'll regret putting Perfect Day forward to my dying day. But again, it, it has that Bowie link. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And... Um, yeah, we've spoken about Perfect Day before. It's it's a great song, but as you said, it, its use is spot on again. Mm-hmm. So we then move on to Mile End by Pulp. Is this the first Ooh. time that we've we've done Pulp? You selected a Pulp video uh, for bad cover version, if you remember. I did, yes. Uh, but this is the first time during going through an album that we have come to Pulp. And I am absolutely certain it will not be the last no, um, we're definitely going to cover Pulp at some point. And it's a lovely choice because it kind of, it perfectly encapsulates the kind of monotony of the corporate life that Renton finds himself in. And particularly when it gets invaded by his mates mm-hmm. and how they begin to overtake what he's tried to build. Yeah, so apparently the song itself is a true story. Um, so according to Jarvis Cocker in a book of his collected lyrics, uh, he said um, that the song was written having been evicted from our squat in Camberwell and we moved into Louis House, a tower block in Mile End. And I think it's a fantastic evocation, as so much of pulp stuff is, of living below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. There's some fucking great acerbic Jarvis Cocker lyrics here. The lift is always full of piss. The fifth floor landing smells of fish, not just on Friday, but every single other day. (laughs) (laughs) And like you said, on the face of it, you could think of it, you could listen certainly to that opening synth part and the sort of light and breezy rhythm. I think it's just a simple bed track to play underneath a montage of Renton sort of trying to settle into his new life, get clean of drugs and away from the bad influences. But that meaning of the song, I think it adds extra weight because he is just an outsider. He's playing at having a normal life and that he can never escape his old life as we see when Begbie finds him, Sick Boy comes down. Uh, again, I, I may be reading too much into it, but I think there's a really, really good double meaning to the usage there. No, I, I, perfect, I perfectly get that. Personally, I, I would ascribe to that. Um, it's by no means my favourite pulp song, but it has all of the elements that I like in pulp's material. No, I, I, I like it as a song. It's as you say, it's it's not necessarily my go-to, but it's got all the elements that you want from a pulp song. Yep. Okay. So then we go on to for what you dream of, which is Bedrock featuring Kayo. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> or KYO. Don't know. The uh, full-on renaissance mix of For What You Dream Of. So Bedrock is a collaboration between superstar DJ John Digweed and Nick Muir. This was originally released in 1993, but re-released following the film's success, whereupon it got to number one on the UK dance chart and number 25 on the main singles chart. So it's played in the film when Renton and Begby go to a club to celebrate winning on the horses, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think? So I think it's a, it's a really good choice of music for the club scene. It's quite an exciting piece of house. Maybe goes on a bit too long, but what's gone before is very sort of old school this this is bringing you up to date with what's with what's going on even though it's from a couple of years before it, it is bringing the the musical bed to the film certainly yeah. up to date with the contemporary currents within british music at that time yeah i, I mean i it will come as no surprise to you certainly i fucking love this it's an absolute rammer. It is, it is really good and it is really exciting. And it's not too long. It's fine. I'd happily do some more of it. I agree with you. It's perfect for depicting a mid-90s club scene because this is exactly the sort of stuff that was being played around about that time. I, I'd completely forgotten about this tune and it was great hearing it again. It took me right back. It, it's boss. It's. I agree with what you said and it's something that I'm going to come back to again in a, in a bit. Really clever of Danny Boyle, of Andy McDonald, of Tristan Penner. You've got a mixture. We've talked about the mixture of, of old artists and contemporary artists from the Britpop scene. Mm-hmm. But as you said, you've also then got them picking up onto what's emerging. So, yeah, this came out in 93. But you've got Leftfield coming up. They had a big album the year before, 95 got Underworld, which became massive. So it's, as I said, a lot of indie boys brought this soundtrack album, and I think it played no small part in what was to come in the latter part of the decade, when, as we said a number of times on The Clash, dance music became mainstream, became the zeitgeist. Yeah, definitely. It opened the doorway. Absolutely right. Yeah, big fan of this. Okay, so then we move on to the next song, which is Two to One by Elastica. Mm. Another one we spoke about before. Indeed, we have talked about this one before. Um, yeah, we waxed lyrical about it at the time. It's got great bass work. It's a really well put together, good song. Justine Freeshman sounds great. It's yep. yeah, it's it's exactly what you want from an Elastica song, really. It is absolutely exactly what from Elastica song. So, it, as we mentioned when we went through the album, it's about the awkwardness of threesomes. And again, I think there's a really subtle and clever irony to where it's used in the film. So as we mentioned when we did Elastica, by this time, Sick Boy's also moved down to them. Renton's feeling really cramped in his apartment because they're all three in there. He's getting pissed off because Sick Boy's just flogged his telly. And so he finds a shitty apartment for them for them to live in. And I think, yeah, the song itself's about sexual awkwardness. But the way it's used in the film, again, is about feeling that sense of claustrophobia of, I thought I'd escape these pricks, and here I am, 400 fucking miles from home, and they're still here. Uh, it's really clever. Yeah, it is. It works very well. 
Okay, but yeah, we've talked about it before, so there's no point waxing lyrical over it again. It's very good. Okay, so then we move on to a final hit by Leftfield. Mm. And it's a really eerie, hypnotising bit of trance. It is. I like I like hypnotising. I think you're absolutely right. Well, there's sort of loads of atmospheric, watery synths mm-hmm. coming in and out. A nice laid-back beat. A typical big left-field bass line, but not pounding in the way that some of their more upbeat songs are. So the title is extremely literal when you think of the scene it's using so it is the scene in which Renton is literally taking his final hit he's sampling the the skag that his gang's about to sell to Keith Allen's least convincing drugs kingpin in history indeed um I'm not sure who the other fella with the tash is but I do kind of recognize him yeah me too but I, I I I can't remember who it is why does Keith Allen get a role in this film I don't know. It's it was a British film in the nineties, so you know he obviously weaselled his way in somehow. See now, all I can think about is Keith Allen playing the romantic lead in Four Weddings and a Funeral. <laughs> Maybe that's how you got funding from the like Arts Council. Is that oh, was Keith Allen it? All right, okay, we'll approve that. <laughs> Does he not talk about it in his book? <laughs> would I would not know. <laughs> Never opened the page. So obviously. As you alluded to a bit ago, Leftfield had also contributed the title track to Shallow Grave, and that's a fucking banger as well, that tune. Uh-huh. This is a lot more laid back, but it's good. I like it. Yeah, and again, good choice of music for the scene. Yeah, like, like you said, it's moody, it's a little bit sinister, but at the same time has that, yeah, that, that sort of <sighs> chill out, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. You're on a high, but it's just a little bit. Could go one way, could go the other. So a a well pitched piece. Yeah. Okay. Um. And we we go on to "Born Slippy" by Underworld, <sighs> a a song that is fairly well associated with the film. Yes. Well, so it's the end. It it plays out at the end when he's well, frankly, fucked his mates over when he's robbed them. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't give a shit you leave fucking four grand in a locker for Spud to find in the station. Bollocks, mate. You've Well, got... and obviously when you get onto um, the the follow-up, Spud has something to say about that. Well, exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry. He's completely shut on his mates there. So, sorry, he is beyond redemption. Yeah, he has. Mm. Um, it was massive. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was as big as the film and remains as such. Like so, okay. It was originally a B-side to an unrelated. So, born slippy nooks, as this is, originally a B-side to an unrelated track called "Born Slippy," which came out in May '95. That didn't do much as a single, but this was released in its own right in July '96, effectively to accompany the soundtrack, and it was fucking massive. Yeah. Number two in the UK. Number thirty-three on the US Dance Club song chart, and in Belgium. The Flemish liked it a lot. They put it at number four in their chart, but the Walloons only cared enough for it to reach number 18. So a big split in amongst the Belgians there. So it did not reach Top Waffle. No, it did not. <laughs> so as to the song itself. So in 2006, Underworld vocalist Carl Hyde, he said in The Guardian, 
We used to go out drinking in Soho and I ended up in the ship on Water Street. All the lyrics were written on that night. A drunk seized the world in fragments and I wanted to recreate that. I was into flash photography as well. So I was walking around Soho with a notebook and camera, just observing things. In those days, I opened the book whenever a musical idea inspired me. Rick Smith, his collaborator Underworld, came up with a rhythm and I started singing over it. The vocals are done in one take. When I lost my place, I'd repeat the same line. That's why it goes lager, lager, lager. The first time we played it live, people raised their lager cans and I was horrified because I was still deep into alcoholism. It was never meant to be a drinking album. It was a cry for help. Now I don't mind. So, that line, it was never meant to be a drinking anthem. It was a cry for help. I know that you will know people who, whenever this was on in the pub oh, on yeah. a Friday night, like, fuck off. <laughs> it made me hate this song for a long time, and I really do not hate this song. Okay. No, I, I know exactly what, because it encouraged a type of person to, mm-hmm. do you know what, in my head, like, I'm, so it encouraged like a Carling drinker, to hold yeah, exactly. hold their ca- like oh god geezers yeah and it is it is a really good tune and it was hijacked by knobheads yep unfortunately and so I, I don't really have anything more to add about the song um i think i'm going to talk about how it's used in the ending of the film and i think it's again i think it's really clever mm. i mean we've said that a lot <laughs> but because the song builds up and you start off with that, that slow bit, and then the, the big drums come in mm-hmm. and everything like that. It's it's reflecting that he's building himself up to do it. And then yeah. once once he decides he's going to do it and he's trying to take the, the bag up from Begbie, which, you know, you're going to be shitting yourself doing that. Mm-hmm. Like the drums are really, really in, and you're like, you're dead tense, and there's yeah. this soundscape behind, and it works really well in ramping up that tension. And then when he's out and he's with the bag and it's the drums and everything else is leading him out of the it's life that he joyous. has. He's got a big smile yeah, on his face yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Could we also, as an aside, just say that that black and red head bag, has there ever been a cooler piece of luggage? Absolutely not. I had one and it was fucking ace. I loved my head bag when I had it at school. Yeah, exactly. No, you, I, I agree with you entirely about about the way it's used and that that massive synth riff that kicks it off and then comes back in halfway through. It is. It's when it comes back in, it's joyous. Yeah, the tensions evaporated. He's he's escaped. Although, as you say in the follow up, we find out that he very much hasn't, and that's right because, as I said, you fucked your mates over, so you deserve it. Mm-hmm. So I do want to say a little bit more about the tune, or, or, or at least about its impact. It's one of the most iconic tunes of the 90s. And I've mentioned it before as, to me, one of the most important milestones in propelling dance music into the mainstream. And, uh, yeah, this did no harm for Underworld. You know, for them to have stuck a B-side on a soundtrack album and for it to sell well over a million copies and make them a household name, fair play. I mean, it's fucking great. So I hadn't got into Underworld by this time. I did after this. So I went straight back and listened to Dub No Bass of My Headman, Second Toughest in the Infants. 
So yeah, this was arguably it beyond any of the other things that we've talked about before. If this tune doesn't come out in the summer of 96, do the Chemical Brothers go massive? Okay, they had Noel Gallagher, so perhaps. Does Fatboy Slim go massive? I don't know. I don't think so. This is the missing link, <laughs> one might say. It definitely booted the doors open mm. for for dance acts because you think of other things that kind of come out subsequent to this. You've got the propeller heads. You've got, yeah. You know, there's there's all kinds of things that that are given a chance that may not have done because this was huge. And as as you talked about earlier, it got the indie boys dancing. And yeah. um, as soon as you got that market loads of bands were given an opportunity they may not have may not have done no exactly and it's not it's not a subtle introduction to the world of dance music either which you could say something like rockefeller skank setting sun block rocking beats are for different reasons all of them but you know what i mean mm-hmm. this is fucking this the beat on this is absolutely fucking colossal pounds right through your chest every time you hear it. it's massive and it's like, all right, if you like this, then fucking you wait to hear what's coming behind us, mate. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. This this is one of the most important tunes in my musical education. I absolutely adore Born Slippy, despite what it became associated with by Pricks. It transcended that for me because it is that good. Uh, no, I, th- I, I completely agree with you that it is massively important because it absolutely pushed that kind of dance crossover thing mm-hmm. um, massively into the mainstream and enabled, as I said, opportunities for those who may not have necessarily got the same audience or opportunities yep. prior to this. Yep, absolutely right. Okay, so we finished the album with Closet Romantic by Damon Alban. Mm-hmm. So I made the note when listening to it, Certainly, it seems like a precursor to some of his later Good, the Bad and the Queen stuff. It brings uh, that kind of end of the pier, faded, seaside sound to the fore. Oh God, yeah. It's perfectly fine, if not a bit whimsical. Whimsical is right. My note, I hated Ernold saying, and this is only marginally better, what an odd way to end. Yeah, and I think it, for an instrumental, it goes on too long as well. Far too long. So I find it's interesting what you talked about, The Good, The Bad and The Queen. You're right. I don't mind that album, but I very much had more, not just some of the the more cheeky, chappy stuff that's on Great Escape, but some of the instrumental interludes on Park Life as well, which I'm also not overly keen on. Yeah, it's fine. I, I don't get why he starts mentioning the names of Sean Connery Bond films at the end. Oh. Including Never Say Never Again, which is shit. <laughs> well, and is is also like the franchise breaker. Yeah, exactly. It's not a it's not an Eon produced Bond film, so also it doesn't count, Damon. No, as I said, a distinctly odd way to end, even on the film, even as the end credits are rolling after you've just heard Born Slippy, you're like, eh, all right, fine. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a slightly odd choice for the end credits, I suppose. Like. After that ending, where do you go with it? So something that's a bit Mm low-key. I can kind of understand that choice, but it's not my favourite piece of music. Yeah, indeed. So we are done on the album. So, reviews. I don't really have a huge amount, to be honest. I've only got one. 
And yet again, it's from uh, Mr. Stephen Thomas Erlwine on All Music, who says the entire soundtrack holds together surprisingly well as the techno tracks balance with the pop singles. Every song, whether it's Pulp's deceptively bouncy Mile End or Brian Eno's lush deep blue day, is quite melancholy, creating an effectively bleak but oddly romantic atmosphere for the entire record. With the exception of the oldies, every song is rare or especially recorded for the soundtrack, and nearly everyone is superb. Primal Scream's title track sees them returning to the dub dance experiments of Screamadelica with Grace, while Damon Orban's first solo song, Closet Romantic, is as good as any of Blur's waltzes. But the finest new song is Pulp's Mile End, with its jaunty neo-dancehall melody and Jarvis Cocker's evocative haunting lyrics. That song, more than anything else on the soundtrack, captures the feeling of the film. Apart from his praise of Closet Romantic, once again, spot on. Yeah, I completely agree with your comments there. He's wrong on Closet Romantic, but fine everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Okay, can I go on to some Nobby then? I have no more reviews. Yeah, let's let's hear the Nobbus. All right, so once again, he hasn't reviewed this. Apparently, soundtrack albums are beneath him. So, um, once again, however, I did want to include something from him, just like I did last week. So, uh, you'll notice I have once again chosen uh, one of your favourites, just to get you annoyed. This is what Nobby said about Lust for Life. If the idiot explores the trance-prone affinity for the slow rocker that Bowie evinced on Station to Station, this re-establishes the Apollonian affinity for the Dionysiac artist Bowie made so much of years ago on Mott's All the Young Dudes. Like most rock and rollers, I prefer this to the idiot because it's faster and more assertive, which means, among other things, that the nihilistic satire is counteracted by the forward motion of the music itself. What? <laughs> <laughs> is that peak nobby <laughs> the apollonian affinity for the dianosiac artist bowie made so much of five years ago on all the young what 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 no idea no <laughs> oh great but yeah I, I deliberately chose let's stay together and let's for life because i knew you'd get annoyed <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on from that. Fine. So, the legacy, so as we said, it reinvigorated several people's careers. Iggy Pop, most of all, really mm-hmm. benefited from it. As we've also said, there was a second album that was released, but it was mostly stuff that was influenced. So there was a couple of songs that weren't included on the, on the original soundtrack album that do appear in the film that they include. So, you know, Temptation by Heaven 17 and there's Carmen's Sweet Number 2 by Bizet. There's a couple of other things that are, that are included, but most of it is stuff that's um, influenced by it. So Golden Years makes its way on onto there. As does The Passenger. And the whole thing just felt like a cynical cash-in. Yeah, it, it, it really was. Although I would say that the Choose Life tune by the pf project was a fucking banger i did like that i do remember it but i i I can't say i have a particular strong opinion about it okay fair enough what you can certainly say that is the legacy of of the film is that certainly it jump-started the british film industry It, it it had been gradually getting back to its feet um, in the 90s. So you have stuff like Blast Off, as we said, Shallow Grave. So the 
there's the start of the rebirth of the British film industry. But Train Spotting absolutely opens opens doors for all kinds of things that come come after. So, does the full Monty get made without Train Spotting? You know. Yeah, I, I, absolutely right. I agree. So this is one of the most significant touch points of the grotesquely named Cool Britannia movement, which started in like art, the likes of Tracy M and Damien Hurst, music we've talked about, obviously, here it is in film. You know, British culture was alive, it was vibrant, and it was cutting edge. You know, this wasn't Four Weddings and a Funeral, this wasn't Richard Curtis's fantasy version of upper middle class Britain which he seems to want to portray in every one of his films, one of which directed by Danny Boyle, ironically enough. (laughs) This was a fucking visceral punch to the side of the head, exposing the grim reality of life below the poverty line. And, yeah, really, really invigorated the British film industry. And, no, I don't think the full Monty gets made were it not for this. Thematically, it does have more uh, in common with Brassed Off and things like that because of the mm. subject matter. But there was a real appetite for films about the British working class, effectively, after Trainspotting. Yeah. Although, yeah, The Full Monty is a very different film, I, I agree. And like we've said, the soundtrack captured the imagination of the public. As I've said, I think Born Slippy was the first true club anthem. And it was one of the sounds of the summer. The only thing that kept it off, number one, do you remember what it was? Was it the Boo Radleys? No, it was a little-known song called Wannabe by the Spice Girls. Well, bloody hell. (laughs) So this was the summer when they exploded as well. And, um, yeah, we've pretty much covered the legacy of Mm -hmm. both the film and the soundtrack. Obviously, there was Train Spotting 2 in 2017, and all I want to say about that is there's some good tracks on the soundtrack there. The Young Fathers one is, is really good. Yeah, it is. But I like the way that Underworld reworked Born Slippy for the soundtrack, sort of mm-hmm. slowed it down quite a lot, and obviously there's a nostalgia hit there when it comes in. But it also, once again, perfectly captures the melancholy of that film. Well, yeah, it reflects the the fact they slowed down. It reflects that everyone's aged and, yeah. and not the young, vibrant 20-year-olds that they are in the film, in yeah. the first film. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of it all, Spud, Renton and Sick Boy are stuck with each other. Yeah. And on that note, I have nothing more. No, I have nothing else. So we'll go on to best song, worst song. All right, I'm going to do my worst song first because it's obviously Atomic. It is a really lackluster cover version. Yeah. My best song, well, I've picked Nightclubbing as best song on a previous album, so it'd be cheating for me to pick it again, but it is fucking glorious. Mm. I have to go for Born Slippy. It is absolutely mega. Mega, mega. (laughs) White thing. And as I said, it is one of the most important songs in my musical education. So, Johnny Obvious, but with good reason. Okay. So, yeah, worst song on the album is the Atomic cover. It's shit. Mm-hmm. The best, I mean, again, it's really difficult to choose a best song. So, Born Slippy is a belter. My Lens, Sing, Nightclubbing, we've talked about. Temptation is a belter, but... For this soundtrack, the best song is the first song on the album. It's Lust for Life because 
you absolutely think of this film much like you do with Born Slippy when you hear that. Mm-hmm. A perfectly cromulent choice. And so, yeah, fair enough. You you are spoiled for choice again, as as we said last week. Okay, so we have to go scoring. So, mm. as is traditional. I lead us off and then bring us home. You lead us off, yeah. All right, Pulp Fiction. It's a great soundtrack album. Funnily enough, although I had it at the time and, and really enjoyed it, as we've talked about before, I never got into the, the, the more soul R&B type tunes until much later. I mean, I enjoyed the ones that were on the album, but I never explored further. So I can't say that it was really instrumental in my musical education. But that's not to say I didn't love it, because I did, and I do. I think the use of some of the more famous songs in the film is absolutely pitch perfect, starting with Miserlou and going all the way to Surf Rider, the last track. It has become synonymous with, well, how many commercials, how many TV shows, etc., have used songs from that soundtrack album, which is testament not only to the success of the film, but the strength of of the songs on that soundtrack Mm -hmm. album. Tarantino is great at choosing music which perfectly capture the style of his films. The use of the surf rock music is great and peppering it with some absolute soul classics in there. For me, a really, really moving piece of music in If Love Was a Red Dress. I know you weren't so keen on it, but I really like it. I'm rambling a bit here because I'm trying to think about what score to give it. I'm going to go 8 out of 10 for Pulp Fiction. It's brilliant. Yeah, 8 out of 10. Okay. I mean, you've you've taken a lot of the steam out of my... Um, you know, so I think it's really clever that they include excerpts from the film. That's a really interesting choice, and not many soundtrack albums that I've heard actually bother to do that. Mm. So it does bring you back to those scenes and remind you of... Of what's, of what's gone on in the film. And that works really well. They have picked some of my absolute favourites on here. And they're great. And then obviously introduced me to some to some things that I've never heard before, like loads of the surf, surf rock stuff as well, you know, that I'd never have come across miserably without this. And they're great. They're absolutely great. It's a really well put together album. And it covers a lot of different bases as well. So I think you, I would agree with your scoring. I think it is a good 8 out of 10. Okay, so Pulp Fiction soundtrack gets 16 out of 20, which might take some beating, but uh, we'll see where we go. So Kev, what are you going to give Train Spotting? So this soundtrack album... It's definitely pressing the right buttons for me in the how Bowie influenced it is. So that's always going to stand it in good stead. And, you know, there's a there's a lovely blend of the new and the old, or at least at that time, the new and the old. It, it covers lots of different genres within British music. And it's, it's a really well put together. And again, lots of the choices remind you of the film because of how well chosen they were for the, for the particular scenes. However, unlike Pulp Fiction, there are at least two songs on here that, well, one that, that's just actively not very good. And the last song 
isn't great. But there's loads of really good stuff on here. So I'm going to come down with a seven and a half out of ten. It's it's a really good album, but it loses points because that's a, a shy cover. Okay. You have put me in a really, really difficult position now. I agree with much of what you've just said. And again, as I said with Pulp Fiction, and as I've said several times throughout today's show, the choice of songs with the scenes that they accompany is time and again absolutely perfect. What I think Danny Boyle does, which we didn't talk about much with Tarantino, is really subtle and clever irony and double meaning, double entendre, if you like, with some of those songs to hit home what the scene is, what the story is telling you at that point, which is to his immense credit. And he's continued to do that. Yeah, there's two songs that aren't great. Well, there's one song that's not great and one song that's that's a bad cover version. But there's so much to get into. Old songs, new songs, undiscovered songs. This was a really important album for me when I was 15 and was a really important stepping stone into what I'm into now, as it was for you, although via different routes, let's say. And I have to take that into consideration. This was more influential to me at that time. But can I give it a nine? Because there are two tracks that aren't very good. Eight and a half. I'm happy to I'm happy to call this one a draw. Oh fair enough. I do I do have to score it more highly than Pulp Fiction because of what it means to me personally. So I have to give it eight and a half, which means we have a sixteen all draw. And I'm I'm happy with that draw. Um yeah, I think it's fair. They're, they're both excellent soundtracks. Mm, they are, they are. So only our second ever draw, but it's too close to call this one. Mm-hmm. All right, so well done. Well, well done to both of our participants on this clash. Uh, you both emerge from the ring of death, slightly bloodied and bruised, but very much alive. Indeed. Um, so hopefully you live to fight another day. Indeed. Speaking of another day, Kev, what are we going to be doing next? Are we still doing films? We are, Great. but I've decided to do something different. Ooh, okay. And so I did think about doing an, another jukebox um, clash. I I thought about doing, and maybe depending on how long we decide to have this season for, maybe something an album done by a particular artist or something like that. Mm. But what I've actually gone with are two soundtrack albums from concert films. Ooh, okay. So we will initially be starting our clash by covering Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads, (laughs) which will face Rattle and Hum by U2. Oh, wow. Brilliant selection. I'm looking forward to that. That is a completely different take on the theme that I hadn't considered, but a very, very clever one. Well done. Thank you. Great. So we get to talk about David Byrne and the Talking Heads. I'm all sorts of excited about that. Well, I'll get to talk loads about Tina Weymouth's bass playing. Mm. Yeah, Which is always a good thing. (laughs) Oh dear, great stuff. Okay, well, that is next week. Before then, however, Kev, please tell people how they might keep in touch with the show. 
So um, Twitter is usually a place for um, carefully thought out opinions about various things. And whilst on Twitter, you can see uh, classic examples of whataboutery and various fans of sports washing sports franchises arguing about the relative merits of or the unfairness of what's been done to their club. Yes. It's a frankly unedifying spectacle. <laughs> That's unusual for Twitter. <laughs> well, exactly. Whilst on Twitter and shaking your head at humanity, um, you may also come across our Twitter page, our Clash Album. Um, if you like carefully curated content, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album, or if you want to sign up for AVN <laughs> uh, antivirus, then you can uh, sign us up at albumclash at gmail.com. <laughs> sign me up to the Aeroflot frequent flyer miles scheme. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very good. Uh, yeah, let's let's leave all that to one side. Um, thank you for listening, guys. Something I should have said at the start of the show, and it completely passed my mind. It's our birthday on this show. It is our 52nd... Well, it's actually our 54th episode, if you can count the two bonus episodes. But it's our 52nd proper episode. 52 weeks of Album Clash. We are one year old today. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> so yeah thank you so much for listening if any of you have listened to every episode then i'm very very sorry <laughs> well well done exactly for sticking with it this long do you think people binge listen to us i certainly hope not i mean i can't so <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> but no generally guys thank you very much hope you're enjoying it get in touch with the show let us know what you like let us know what you don't like let us know if there's something you want us to go through in our film season. Leave your ratings, leave your reviews, all that jazz. Just a reminder, in our next clash, next week's show, I will be taking us through Talking Heads Stop Making Sense from 1984. And Kev, in two weeks... I will be taking us through U2's Rattle and Hall. Brilliant stuff. Until then, however, I have been Tim... I have definitely been careful. And we'll see you next time. Take care, guys. Ta-da. Ta-da.